Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a, a way to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and I'm really glad that you're joining us today for this uh, second in a video conversation with a rabbi who has really had an impact on me. I'm here today with Rabbi Arnie Sludelberg, and the relationship between us is one whose import and impact on me is going to be very difficult for me to overstate. As I've introduced guests in the past, you know, there's a fairly brief bio and then we get right into the material. But I've asked Rabbi Arnie if he would allow me to give just a little bit of an expanded introduction today because, because for me, it's very important to do so. I, I wanted to start by acknowledging that Arnie has been a part of my life for about 30 years, and, and I'm getting to the age where that just sounds amazing to be able to say. And we've had one of those special relationships, and, and you'll all understand what I mean when I say that our lives can go in, in far-ranging directions that aren't necessarily parallel, but when we reconnect, we pick up where we left off. And it's, it's precious in that there's, you know, it, there's none of that sense of, of guilting the other for having been unavailable in the, in the recent years. And I've always appreciated that, Arnie. I, I realized how much my conversation last week with Rami Shapiro impacted me and, and how many people enjoyed the conversation. And that led me to realize that there are other people who've had impact on my theology. And the first obvious choice was you. And so I reached out and I tracked you down. You were on the road with your husband, Robert, as you were out in, was it Kansas City? I was. Yeah. Uh, you were out there to do a, a wedding, but also to spend some time enjoying yourselves and seeing the country. It was it was something that I wasn't surprised by because you told me that during the pandemic, the two of you realized there was no need for you to be stuck there in, in at home in Michigan, although you've created a beautiful home. And you bought yourselves a camper and you hit the road. And it sounds like you've spent almost more time on the road these last couple of years than, than at home. That's true. We've loved it very much. <laughs> well... As I thought about the conversation today, it occurred to me that I don't think that there's anyone that I can point to in my life other than my parents who've had as much impact on who I am today. Uh, and it's, it's, it's sort of remarkable how often I stop and I think about, well, what would Arnie say in this situation? And that's a, that's a really important person that I think everybody should hopefully have in their in their toolbox uh, someone who can guide their thinking, um, even when you know your your relationship is 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 not readily in front of you. You and I got to know each other when I was a freshman in high school, and you were a relatively young rabbi. I mean, when were you ordained? Eighty eight. Okay, so I would have gotten into Nifty at about nineteen ninety or so, maybe ninety. Yeah, probably 1990. And you were, I think we called you the rabbinic dean. You were sort of the liaison to the the nifty Michigan region. It was called Misty back then. I was a new freshman. I, I met another another boy, also a freshman. That would be Charlie Citron Walker. And the two of us became fast friends. And we immediately identified this cool rabbi who was just nothing like the rabbis that he and I had grown up with. You stayed a part of our lives as rabbinic dean throughout high school, 
And, and then what was remarkable was as I moved into the next chapter of my life, you stayed with me in my life. And that was, I think, because we both recognized someone really special. And our friendship then transformed into something very, very unusual, I think. And I say that because I, I know how rare it is for me now in, in a similar role to be able to bridge that gap between a student who grows up with me as a student and then takes that next step into a friend. Those are pretty special. You and I started enjoying different experiences together. We went camping so many times. You have a, or had at the time, a retreat space up in Traverse City, Michigan, and we would spend time up there. I There are so many moments that I can reflect back on that just seared themselves into my long-term story, but I'll only mention a couple. One of them is the day that you took me to Sleeping Bear Dunes, and we sat at Pyramid Point. And you taught me, well, first I should say you taught me how to meditate in general, but that day you taught me how to utilize a space and a place and to lock it into long-term memory using senses. And we walked through, I got, I don't know how long it took. I don't know if we were at it for an hour, uh, but slowly you walked me through each sensory experience of that space. And we locked it in using, you know, the, 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 the skin between thumb and forefinger. And, and it made such an impression on me that I can still, and I do regularly still take myself back to that moment. I can hear the wind. I can smell the, the water. I can see the shape of the dune out falling away in front of us. I mean, it was so unbelievably effective. And my only sadness is that since then, I've only helped create that experience once for one other person. Uh, it, it, it's not the kind of um, opportunity that presents itself very often. I'm curious, do you remember that day? Oh, I, 100%. You do. Uh, and, it, and it was rare for me too, to have uh, a, a friend at that point um, uh, who, with whom I could share that. It was very special. I, I'll share one other, well, two stories, but one that, that just kind of demonstrates who you are and, and the impact that you've had on me, you, you and I were hiking one day and we, I think I, I don't know, in my mind, the story looks like this. I, I turned around and found you on your hands and knees with your nose about three inches from a big rock that had moss all over the side of it. And I asked you, what, what are you doing? And you said, come here, take a look at this. And you had me get in real close and you had me just appreciate detail that I had never been shown before. And we meditated there and the, the impact was not only not lost on me, it was such a powerful tool to put in my toolbox that I now, and maybe you'll be pleased to hear this. I now never hike without two things. I always have, well, three things sometimes. I always have a magnifying glass and I have this little tiny, I should, I should have had it with me to show you, little tiny travel microscope. And you can, you can just, you can connect it to your phone and you can get right up next to that moss. And if you want take pictures or you can use your eyes, but, and sometimes the third thing is binoculars, but I much prefer the, the little stuff. And so as a funny aside, uh, when i caught you in Kansas City and we had a conversation about this this meeting today. Uh, I thought it was just perfect. Uh, and um, and people won't necessarily believe that this is literal, but I, uh, I said, so what are you guys doing today? And you said that you and Robert were going out to watch the grass grow. And, uh, and you literally were doing just that. You were riding your bicycles out to go watch the, uh, the tall grass grow, yeah? 
which I have to admit in the autumn is not quite as exciting as it might sound. Well, what I love is that you weren't necessarily looking for exciting. Maybe you were looking for a little bit of visual clarity on it, but but it was just perfect. I mean, that's exactly who you are. It's it is what I loved about you, and it's it's how you've you've just through your own example, you've taught me to be who I am. So I'm going to tell one more story, and then I think we're going to get into into the the conversation in which you'll have a chance to actually say something, but. I imagine that every rabbi gets this question a lot and it takes, you know, variations of form, but it sounds something like, how did you decide to become a rabbi? And in fact, I just got the same question at lunch today. And so each of us has a somewhat refined version that we tell. And many people who are listening to this will have heard me tell this story. And it again, stories take shape long after they, they happen. And so I'll be curious to know a, if you remember this at all, and B, if there's any variation in your memory. But here's how I tell the story. I went off to, to a small engineering college in Flint, Michigan called GMI, but lucky for me, it was an internship program. And so half the time I was also working as an engineer, which showed me, thank God, early on that I didn't want to be an engineer. There just was no fulfillment for me in it. I took a semester off and I transferred to the University of Michigan. And sometime in that window of time, maybe it was the first year while I was at Michigan, I don't know, you and I were having breakfast and we were at a diner on Woodward in Ferndale. And, and I was expressing to you my, my angst, you know, just not sure where I was going to go with my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know who I was. And, and you sat there with a smile and you chuckled. And again, this is how I tell the story. I said to you, I'm glad this is entertaining for you. What's so funny? And you said, Jay. It's so obvious to all of us, you're going to be a rabbi. And I laughed it off for, for two reasons. One, I had only a couple of models of what a rabbi was in my mind at that time. And they weren't either positive or attainable. Positive meaning I didn't want to be leading the kind of Judaism of some of those models and not attainable meaning. I looked at you and thought, how could I take on the same title that you have? I mean, you, you held that kind of place in my mind. But I tell people that, that there was a seed that was planted and it germinated over the next couple of years. And I ran off to Israel to, to put the decision off a little bit longer where I fell in love with Julie, but that it was you who put the seed in my head. And, and so I really can thank and credit you for, for starting that, that thought process. And I'm curious if you have any reaction to how I just told that story? No, I, I remember that well also. You do? Um, yeah. And in my own case, I can go into more detail about what led to it. But I remember so clearly when I finally came to the conclusion that being a rabbi was the right thing for me. Um, I, I hadn't shared any of it with anybody. I, it was really a solo journey on my part to figure it out. And and I, I was with a, a friend um, and I said, I, I finally figured out what I want to do. And he said, you're going to be a rabbi. <laughs> and so it, 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 resonated, it resonated then, resonates now. You know, in my case, it was after I'd made a decision 
but it was clear that people knew who I was and, and what I, what would be fulfilling for me professionally. Mm -hmm. But I didn't find that out until I'd made my decision. In your case, it was just so clear. It was just so clear. Well, it sounds like it was to others in your case as well. And I don't know if it's meant the same to you, but I think the certainty that you expressed to me that day and, and was probably reinforced by others, you know, after that, uh, has been really important along the way whenever I'm struggling or I doubt, or I, I wonder whether, um, you know, the imposter syndrome takes over and I think, what am I doing pretending I'm a rabbi? Sometimes I go back to those those moments of certainty that you had and I think, all right, look, if he if he saw it, I guess, you know, there's something there. So yeah, that that's pretty powerful. Do you ever get asked about your, your upbringing? Do people wonder if the way your parents delivered Judaism to you was a major factor in your becoming a rabbi? In, in my case, it certainly was. And, and, and yes, I, ha- I have been asked. As you know, Jay, I'm a, a child of Holocaust survivors. And, and because of their experiences in Europe, when they came to America, they deliberately chose to settle in a small town where there were no other Jews and, in a sense, pretend not to be Jews. They didn't change their names. They opened a clothing store. So there were all kinds of for anybody who would really think about it, they were they were refugees from from the Netherlands, but they were under the illusion that people didn't know that they were Jewish and they never talked about it with anybody. And so that was the environment I grew up in was hiding as a family mm-hmm. it, our Jewish heritage. And and I remember many examples in school of, you know, making sure that. I didn't d- divulge what was going on, even even my bar mitzvah. Um, I couldn't tell any of my friends uh, about it. So, so I'm sure that psychologically there's some relationship to having grown up in hiding and now being a rabbi. That, you know, it's pretty hard to hide being Jewish when you're a rabbi. So I, I, I think that there was some kernel at least at just a, a soul level needing to share my truth uh, mm-hmm. with the world and even though that was not consciously part of my reason for becoming a rabbi it, it couldn't not have been it's really interesting i don't think i've ever heard you frame it in that way before and i'll i'll return to the theme later but but there's a piece that resonated with me in what you just said. And in some ways, and correct me if I'm overreaching here, but in some ways, becoming the rabbi that that represented that sort of visibility and 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 centrality allowed you to be a part of a Judaism that wasn't available to you as a kid. And that piece of my rabbinate has become more and more clear over the last couple of years. How how I guess like parenting. You know, when we when we grow to adulthood, the choices we make sometimes emulate what our parents would have done and sometimes are the opposite of what our parents would have done. And and so everything is in many ways a, a reflection or a reaction to to our past. And so for me, and maybe it sounds like for you too, my Judaism is a, a reflection of my past. And for both of us, in many ways, the opposite for you, not hiding. And for me, well, I'll say a few more words later. Can you now take some time and continue that narrative that you just began for us? Can you tell us some of the salient points of your your spiritual journey that 
that opened up to you in ways that were either intentional or surprising? Maybe a few of the the salient experiences or the people or the or the, the in the materials that that were there for you, how it's changed over the last couple decades. I just I want to hear more from you about how you got to be here. Yeah, sure. Happy, happy to share. It was, you know, for some people, belief is more of a struggle, and for others, it 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 comes easier. My mother, who was in hiding as a child for two years and seven months, remained a strong believer her whole life long. It came easy to her. She just believed, and she didn't ask a lot of questions about it. She didn't think about it a lot. I don't think it just came easily and naturally, and. And she just did. And and in my early years, that was the case for me as well. I just believed and it was easy for me to believe. And and I had moments of, you know, just real uh what, what felt felt like real divine connections and and it was it just came naturally. When you become a rabbi or a theologian of any sort, you have to start to you know read and read what other people think and start thinking more for yourself and not just taking for granted how you might feel, uh, but you know allow scholarship into your life, uh, even in the realm of faith or or belief. And and so. the opportunity to, to to doubt, of course, entered into that equation as well. But I remember really clearly a movie came out, Crimes and Misdemeanors by Woody Allen. One of my favorite movies, by the way. There's a satyr scene in that movie, and the, the, the main character of the movie has a flashback to his childhood. And so he's at the satyr table with his aunts and uncles and cousins and parents and 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 the aunt is a is a devout atheist and she is you know sharing her view and the uncle is sharing his devout faith and 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 the father as well and at one point the the young man who's returned to his childhood asks a question if somebody you know, doesn't believe or, or does something wrong, will they be punished and 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 so on. It was in that realm. But the father shared that I in a sense, I would rather be right. I'm sorry, I'd rather be believe in God and be wrong than not believe in God and be right. Hmm. Huh. Well that had a huge impact on me. Uh, you know what it, it's almost sort of a cost benefit analysis to borrow an economics term what you know what do we no one can prove that there's a god just like nobody can prove that there's not a god and and so it's not in the realm of knowledge it's in the realm of belief or faith and and one can choose to believe or one can choose not to believe what do we get for choosing to believe well we get this connection with something far greater than ourselves, something that transcends time, something that's connecting to generations past, to a whole you know, millennia worth of history. 
and and hopefully a connection into the future for millennia to come it 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 offers us you know a a, a bounty of reward of, of benefit to have a sense of connection with an eternal with a divine it, it, we tend to have none of that really if we choose not to believe so what's the cost of believing I haven't really found a cost. It, it, you know, sometimes maybe you have to transcend a moment of doubt or, or even many moments of doubt. But other than that, it, it's relatively cost-free to have to, to believe. And, and so I've just decided to believe. So and, did, the, did the study and the, the reading and the voices of others before you modify that belief much? Or is your, is your chosen belief as an adult pretty consistent with what you believed as a child well it's refined i would say over the years my my relationship with the the divine has you know ebbed and flowed and and you know matured over the years i i it's not like i'm 100% sure about anything and if anything the years have helped me to realize that I'm less and less sure about most things. But the core sense of belief, I would say, has endured. And and I, I'm, I'm I, just like the movie, I, I would rather have all of the benefits of belief and ultimately be wrong. And if I am wrong, I'll never even know that I was wrong than, than to not believe and be right. Okay, so I was, I was thinking of telling this quick little story, and I decided oh, I'm, I'm going to hold off. But then you just made me um, unable to hold off uh, because it's so perfect in response to what you just said. Um, during rabbinical school, you guided me towards serving as a chaplain with the Scouts, uh, the Boy Scouts at Philmont Scout Ranch, which was still one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I went back a second summer after that. And it was that experience too, which opened my eyes to other ways to serve as a rabbi. And so that was what probably led me into serving in the, the U.S. Navy as a chaplain there as well. So during basic training, there were 40 clergymen, people, excuse me, of the 40, four of us were rabbis. There were a couple of Others, no Muslims, most of them just Christians of some variety, a lot of evangelicals. And one night we were talking big stuff, big, big conversations. And they, they, there was a, a group of evangelicals who were asking me, so rabbi, uh, I wasn't actually a rabbi yet, but I didn't uh, correct them. Rabbi, what happens if you get up to the pearly gates on your judgment day and there's God and there's Jesus sitting at his right hand and they're mad, they're pissed off because you had us giving you the good news, telling you all this truth, and you chose to ignore it. And I said to them, guys, if that's what happens, if I find myself sitting in front of Jesus, I will fall down on my knees. I will beg forgiveness. I will accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior right there. And I will trust that they will forgive me for having been born a Jew and stuck with my path. Uh, and they, all they heard was, we got this rabbi to admit that he would accept Jesus. Uh, once I let them in, revel in that for just a moment, I turned it around. And I said, Guys, what happens if you get up to the pearly gates and God is sitting there all alone and he's really pissed that you took one of his greatest human beings and elevated him to something beyond what he what he actually was? Uh, in other words, I was asking them, what if you're wrong? And they could not they could not tolerate the possibility 
and the conversation ended immediately. And so I think when you said, okay, if you're wrong, so what? You know, this is this is how you choose to be. That that spoke so powerfully to me. So my next question then, and and I don't know if we were trained this way in in seminary or not, but when someone says to to me, Rabbi, what do you believe about God? My my reflex is to say something like, I will tell you, but only after you share what you believe first. People assign some sort of uh, greater knowledge or certainty or, or or weight to what we believe, which is which is something to to overcome, I think, in, in some ways as a rabbi and as a people. But I'm going to ask you to violate that that tradition. And I'm going to ask you if you would start by by telling us what you do believe. When you when you talk about having faith and believing in the divine, you know, without definition, it means that everyone who's listening is going to assume probably that your version of belief matches what they believe or or at least whatever they all start from their point of belief and it it's just such an important thing to do to to identify what does that belief look like you know i, I you know exactly what i mean i was giving more detail for listeners but i'm going to just shut up and, and ask you to talk about what that belief looks like well, first of all jay i i totally resonate with what you just said because when somebody says that they don't believe in god and i ask them to tell me about the god that they don't believe in uh i don't believe in that god either yeah. you know it, it's it's inevitable that the god that they don't believe in is a god that most of us wouldn't believe in i'll come back to this but on the whole i really don't know what god is and 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 that is you know, partly because God is infinite and I'm not. And by definition, a, a finite being like me cannot comprehend, even begin to comprehend what an infinite being is, is like. We just don't have enough brain cells to do that, to even, you know, scratch the surface of it. What, what I, what I feel like I know or believe a, a little bit more better is uh, what that God expects of me. And, and so that, that's sort of, for me, what's important. I, you know, I, whether I know God's attributes or not, doesn't change God or change the world or change anything. What God expects of me uh, changes everything for me and and therefore anyone who comes into contact with me and by extension the ripple effect the ripple effect on the universe so that's what's important to me is what 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 god expects of me and and i believe that god expects me to be just and kind and compassionate and loving and caring uh and to not just be those things but practice those things and and so that among many other you know positive attributes that i strive to be in my life it's because uh, i i consider them to be the right way to be but also the way that god wants me mm. to be so that's really where i involve myself in terms of thinking about god is you know, I, what are God's attributes? I, you know, we're, we're giving lots of, you know, clues in, in our tradition about that. But again, they're just so limiting when we think about a, a, an infinite 
God. So that's that's sort of you know what's important to me. And, and so when you were talking about our, our limited brain cells, some of the, the the listeners just completed a class that I was with them in. One of my classmates taught called "Beyond the Old Man in the Sky" with Rabbi Micah Streifer. It was really fabulous, and his presentation of Maimonides' teachings was right alongside that. You know, really, our inability to to make statements about what is certainly able to say what God is not. But I, I really heard a uh, consistency there. And it reminded me of, you know, laying up, laying on the backyard with my dad in the summer nights and looking up at the stars and trying to get my brain around the, the scale of the universe and getting to that point where, oh, it just starts to hurt because you're you're approaching something which is beyond yourself. And, and that, I guess, looking back now, I think of it as something more profound than I even realized at the time. What do you, what do you do to reconcile others who have just as much clarity about what God wants, and it's in direct opposition to your set of values. It's not my job. You know, I, I believe everybody needs to be on, on their own path. And, and I believe that God is big enough for all kinds of different thought patterns and levels of belief. And the, the, the only time when I would draw the line on that is when uh, it becomes destructive either to themselves or to people in their lives. And, and so, you know, part of the problem, I think, for some is when their be- belief system becomes so full of surety that they begin to exhibit aberrant behaviors mm-hmm. for themselves and for others mm-hmm. because they think that that's what God wants of them. I I think all of us know that uh, when someone blows themselves up in a pizza parlor because they're going to achieve some major reward in heaven, when they believe that so fervently that they're willing to end their lives in that way and take as many others with them as they can, you know, that is aberrant. And, and it's, and it's, it's when, when belief is taken to the level of surety. Mm-hmm. So I, I, one of the things that I love about Judaism is that we're, we're not sure. I mean, yeah. we, we are a big tent and we allow for a myriad of belief levels and expressions, even non-belief. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's healthy. I think it becomes unhealthy when we become too sure of ourselves because the 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 podcast has has been so so focused on some of the teaching of Rami Shapiro I'll 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 use his presentation of what I just heard you saying which is that there's healthy religion and there's unhealthy religion he says that any of the pieces and every religion has elements of each there's healthy Judaism and there's unhealthy Judaism he says any any of the material from a, a religious tradition that draws people together, that enhances unity and love and respect and big picture, mochin de gadlut, thinking big, you know, big mind thinking, uh, that's divine. That's healthy, good religion. And any of the pieces of religion that divide you, that create hierarchy and judgment and and then, of course, violence and, and, uh, and, and destruction, um, that's unhealthy religion. Uh, and that's the stuff that was written by humans who, who are looking for other other agendas to to take the shape of religion holding on to power or 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 wealth and so that's been a helpful frame for me to 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 think about it 
My guess is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when you were growing up, you said that your family was not out, so to speak, as Jews, but you mentioned bar mitzvah. Did you go through a religious education through Sunday school? When I was in the fifth grade was when my family decided that it was safe enough to have our names on a Jewish list. Uh-huh. And we joined the synagogue about 45 minute drive away in uh-huh. Jackson, Michigan. Uh-huh. And I started my formal religious training in the fifth grade. And it, it was super important to me it, it, because I'd been denied any kind of connection to anyone Jewish my age. It was, I loved it. I took to it and, and, and wanted more and more. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I had a bar mitzvah, you know, when I was 13 and it was a, it was a transformative experience for me. I just loved the learning and I loved, I loved everything about it. And, and ultimately be, chose to became, become a rabbi because I got to do the things that I loved on a daily basis. And, and, and for me, those things were teaching counseling, public relations, public speaking, living Jewishly, and and all of those things I got a chance to do, maybe with the exception of counseling. When I was a bar mitzvah, you know, I got to, you know, read Torah and and give a public speech and and teach about our tradition and, and live Jewishly and you know, all of those things that I, I just loved it. Now the even the counseling part, I'm sure I know that there was a part in my in my talk that, you know, about, uh, you know, how, how to live, how, how, how we Jews are, are expected to live, what God wants of us. And so, you know, I, I, and along the way, ever since then, probably at every point, you've had a small number of students who were engaged just the way you were. And, you know, and I, I've always got, you know, a, a nice smattering of those kinds of kids who are excited who love it, who soak up every element of it. And I, I try not to teach just to them alone because they're such pleasant partners in, in the journey. I love those students, the ones you described yourself being. So the question I had was, I would think that the God that was being presented to you starting in fifth grade in the formality of a religious school classroom, especially because they had to catch up and teach the the Bible stories. Maybe you got some of that at home, but, but there was, there was a need to present the God of Torah. And I wonder whether the God you described a few moments ago, the transcendent, infinite, in undefinable God, which is in my mind or in my hearing of it, quite different than the God of the Bible. I, I wonder First of all, am I right that you were you were delivered that that biblical version of God at that age? And second of all, if so, how did you break free of that? How did you break through that the walls of that box? Even back then, our teachers didn't teach Torah or Bible as literal. And and I and I've never considered those biblical stories to be literal. My feeling is, you know, what even if it's pure fiction, and I'm not saying that that it necessarily is, but probably some of it is pure fiction. We can still learn a lot from it, and and so that's always my goal, you know, in in 
you know, did the sea split and what were there walls of water on either side, like an aquarium and the Israelites walked through? And I don't know, probably not. But what can we learn from that story? Oh, my gosh, there's so much that we can learn that's relevant to how we live our daily lives from that story, whether the sea split exactly that way or not. The, the people who come to me and say, I don't believe in God, I have a remarkably similar uh, beginning of the process that you described. But then what, when they tell me what they do feel powerfully about, I find that it very often reflects almost exactly what I believe, and yet they resist the word God. And I've decided, or at least in my thinking at this moment, I've decided that it's because uh, so much, and I think it it certainly happened for me growing up, I was presented those stories as just a shot understanding, just right there, it is what it is. And at the age where I should have been handed uh, the next level of, of discourse, right around, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old, it was absent. Um, luckily, I met you, uh, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but- I think that so many of the people out there, in my in my estimation, and I tried to do a, a, a belief survey last year, I got fabulous responses. Unfortunately, I only got them from people um, your age. Uh, I didn't get from our younger families. Um, I wanted to have a good demographic, but it did confirm what I thought, which is that there's not very many out there who believe in the God of the Bible, but so many out there who say, I don't believe in God, but I'm spiritual. And when you ask them what that means, it is exactly what I mean when I say I'm spiritual. And it's interesting how much damage and baggage, maybe that's an easier word, how much baggage the word God has to it and how alienating it's, it's made so many adult Jews feel. I wonder when we sit in the, the sanctuary on Rosh Hashanah and we've got a couple hundred people out in front of us, what they're doing with the, the, the moment when the, the words of the Mahsur describe a theology that's not theirs and no one has ever taught them that it's metaphor or that it's it's permissible and it's encouraged to to go beyond the words and to to make them work for you. It's just the the lack of permission about believing in something else is I, th I think it's really one of our, our great opportunities and and huge obstacles. You were that that beginning for me. I don't know that it was ever quite explicit but it was you who taught me that there's spirituality out there and it and you access it through this or through that behavior and this way of thinking and and I just I I guess I've I've placed myself in my rabbinate uh in the hopes of trying to be that that personality or that presence for as many people as I can to help them get through that doorway of realizing that oh that childhood God that was taught to me is not the only option. It always feels very exciting to me when I feel I've contributed to somebody getting through that wall. I think I think one of the things that has helped me in my own personal spiritual journey is, and and it, it, anybody who believes in God believes that God is everywhere, right? That's a common. You know, if God is infinite, then God is everywhere, including inside each of us. And 
And that's the part of God that I feel like I can access. The part of God that's within me, that's within my heart, that's within my soul. And th that's where I look to for answers and for guidance and, and for, you know, knowing which way to turn and how to be helpful in and if a, if a, difficult if a, situations. And if a person came to you and said that, I want that, what would be some of the pieces of advice you would offer them about, about how to get there? And I know that a lot of this is more intuitive than it is uh, possible to explain, but how do they, how would you tell them to know that what they're encountering is the divine or what would the interaction feel like so that you know that it's happened? Uh, I hope I'm making my question clear. I think most everyone has God moments, even if they aren't able to define it that way or to recognize that that's what it is. But when, when, when people fall in love, when they have a child and see that baby for the first time at, at other transcendent moments, perhaps when they lose a loved one and they're super vulnerable, those moments are transcendent moments and everybody feels them, uh, but perhaps not everyone recognizes that that's a potential God moment. Uh, but yes. those are the moments that give us a, a clue as to how we might be able to access those feelings, even when we're not admiring a brand new baby or falling in love for the first mm. time, you know, the, but finding out ways to connect with the God within, with our soul, you know, whenever we want to. Uh, Maybe I can ask you to share a, a personal example of not a not a big God moment. I think you're absolutely right. I, you know, some of some of my big God moments and I don't have I don't have dozens. I have a handful. Some of them were right next to you. I think you're right. Everybody probably resonates with those transcendent moments in which you just are absorbed into the the the, the picture as an integral part of it. But I but I wonder then if you could share some personal examples of other moments that would be maybe surprising in your ability to access the divine, whether they were the most banal moments of standing in line at the grocery store or moments of challenge where you're, I don't know, in a situation that's difficult. Can you think of, of some examples of taking that big God moment and accessing it in small moments? I struggled a lot with coming out uh, as a, a gay man. Uh, it, it was a multi-year, really. I, I was 26 when I finally was able to come to terms with with who I was and and I had developed over those years such a, a gripping fear that my life would be destroyed if even one person found out that I was gay and it, there was nothing rational about any of that but it, it was it was real for me somehow and 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 it it had become desperate I just I realized that I just couldn't stay in the closet any longer. And, and I was trying to, you know, figure out a way forward. And, and I remember being deep in meditation about it and, and thought and, and realized that as, at a certain moment that I was uh, singing a song in my mind 
and I had to some degree changed the words. And what I was singing when I finally realized what to, to pay attention to it was everything is beautiful. That song, everything is beautiful in its own way. And then I, this is how I changed the word somehow. The sun is shining everywhere and it's going to be okay. And, and so I started dissecting these words that everything is beautiful. Even me, you know, even, even I am beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Even I am beautiful in, in my own way. I'm beautiful. The sun is shining everywhere and it's going to be okay. That was what I really needed to hear was it's going to be okay. Mm. And not only was it okay, it's just been so good. I mean, everybody in my life embraced me, loved me, supported me, and and the opportunity to be fully me in the world as a Jew, as a gay man, and so many other ways. It's given me permission to 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 open up and bear my soul and be me in my full glory. And, and, and I really believe in my heart that that was my soul. That was my, my truth being revealed to me in that moment, more banal moments, you know, in the grocery store line, when even when we're in a hurry and things aren't going fast and there's somebody you know in front who's taking way too long to pay you know to somehow summon the the compassion and love and kindness in those moments is is a test of of who we are especially when we're in in a difficult spot and so treating that person and the cashier and everybody with love and respect and kindness and with a smile you know not none of us in our better moments want to be that person you know who falls apart in times like that we all aspire to be you know to take a higher road and and when we're able to do that i think we have summoned the god within who allows us to to live our higher selves mm. I heard a translation recently from a local rabbi, Rabbi Mark Golub, who passed away, just a blessed memory, a couple of years ago. He he talked in terms of the Yetzer Hatov as the part of us that's the selfless part, and the Yetzer Hara as the selfish part, and the the ability to recognize when we're acting selfishly, and to be aware of it is the first step on maybe being able to then choose another way of being in the, in the moment. And, you know, people who don't know you the way I do hear advice like what you just offered and couldn't possibly know how consistently I've watched you live that truth. I, I can't think of one example in all the years that I've known you where a situation seemed to present a challenge to you. I'm sure there have been, but Robert could share a few. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. You also mentioned just a moment ago how you realized you were humming a song in your head. And you'll smile about this little vignette. But just the other day, I was uh, walking past Neely, my daughter, who's now 10, and she was humming. And I recognized immediately what she was humming. And I, it was very quiet. She was reading a book and humming. 
And I paused and I stopped and I said, oh, I love that song. And I said, she knows who Rabbi Arnie is. I talk about you all the time. I said, you know, Rabbi Arnie told me once that he always has a song in his head. He's always humming a song quietly. No one else outside him would know it. You told me this years ago and her eyes got real big and she said, me too. I was like, oh, my kid is always humming a song like my, my teacher. Yeah, anyway, those are special people. <laughs> Maybe one more or two more questions and then anything else you'd care to share as well. The first question is in a, in a world right now with so much pain and so much truth from every direction. And I'm referring, of course, to the, the war in Israel and the not maybe not so much at the moment to the domestic challenges for, for America in terms of our cohesion and our ability to, to honor differences, but in Israel, especially I'm curious how you how you're thinking about the 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 matzav the, the the entirety of the situation. I don't mean politically. I guess I mean spiritually. How are you navigating this moment? Well, first of all, it's really hard. All of us who care about human beings grieve at the suffering of, of anyone, any innocent who finds themselves in harm's way, especially children, the elderly. What I, what I think about a lot is intention or motivation. Um, and, and that's how I sort of reconcile with the, the her the horrors of what's going on when when it's the intention of someone to do harm to innocent people that's very different than when the intention is to save the world from an evil entity and very sadly innocents are are caught you know in harm's way do you have any, uh, any I, internal hesitation or or complication around the necessity to kill hamas operatives the terrorists i mean in as much as they are human beings who simply sacrifice that higher level ethical potential and chose to act like animals or continue to act like animals. How, how do you handle what must be sadness when you look at someone, a group of people who, you know, actually, I think it's fabulous that they're usually faceless with, with their faces covered because it, it makes it even easier to take away some of the, the humanity uh, as we, we have to go in and kill them. Is there any, any thinking there that you can share? I think it's uh, sadly part of the human condition and always has been. I think that, that people go astray and take on evil intentions and 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 all too often actualize those intentions. and 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 while it's our it's important to preserve all life, it's the injunction to, value our own lives and to have the opportunity for self-defense is paramount 
And and so the the Talmud teaches us, and of course this is a you know an oversimplified view, but the Talmud teaches us that if someone says to you, "Kill me," or "I will kill you," you kill him mm-hmm. because your life is worth saving and if the only way to cert- save your life is to take theirs you take it and i i, I we're not a people who turns the other cheek that's yeah. not one of our no. uh, uh um one of our beliefs so yeah the world has to be rid of of that ideology now will we ever succeed probably not because there will be some group after Hamas that has that same ideology and we'll have to deal with them down the line. In the meantime, it's Hamas who we have to deal with. And, and they, there is no living side by side in peace with Hamas. Yeah. I think you've done a good job of speaking to the question that I wrestle with, which is, People, people often resent any kind of double standard being placed on Israel. And I wrestle with that because the standard that's out there is not particularly impressive for national behavior. And if we're going to claim that Israel is a, a country, a nation state built on Jewish values, that we've got to be able to base our, our choices and behavior in Torah. And and I've struggled at times, lately especially, to to find that ability. And I like the way that you you chose to offer your response using Deuteronomy and Talmud. That that was that was helpful. I think it was gold in my ear, but I it may be a, a, a I may be misquoting, so forgive me, who said something like, We can forgive you for killing our children, uh, but we can never forgive you for making us kill your children. And I, it makes me think of, of the Native American traditions of ritual and gratitude around the taking of the life of an animal that is going to feed their family, but recognizing the, the shared connection with the animal as just animals on the planet and, and having no great privilege or, or rather uh, permission, I guess, to simply kill the animals indiscriminately. Some of the, the, the pause that goes into the violence associated with providing meat for my family has always really touched me. And I agree with you. I think the intent has left me feeling like a great number of Jews worldwide are deeply aware of what it means to be taking innocent lives along with culpable lives. It's really, really hard. The last question I have would be, are there any um, materials or sources, books, or anything that you've been affected by either recently or long ago that you might just throw out there for us as a, a resource list? I, I always share uh, anything that's mentioned with with listeners afterwards in the in the show notes so that they can follow up if it if if they liked something they heard about. Anything you'd want to leave the the listeners with? I'm a, a real fan of uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. Mm. Um, I have loved all of his books, chief among them, 
to life, uh, l'chaim, to life, which I, I think just captures the essence of who we are as a people better than anything else I've ever read. But when bad things happen to good people, when when children ask about God, and several, they're, they're all, they're, they're chock full of wonderful wisdom. I've read some of them over and over again and, and really have benefited uh, immensely in, in my own life. I'm very indebted to him in particular for his wisdom, what he's been able to bring through his books. Yeah. Jay, could I say one more thing? Yeah. I am so grateful to have had you over all of these years and to still have you as a, a friend and 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 way back when as one of my kids you've uh, made me so proud over and over again and and i just know that your congregation is so so fortunate to have you as their spiritual leader you are are one of a kind and, and i i really feel myself privileged to have you in my life I forgot to mention when I was telling our story that when it came time for Julie and me to plan our chuppah, I came to you and I wanted to give you whatever honor would be most powerful for you. Did you want to officiate at the chuppah or did you prefer to be my best man? And and I would have been thrilled with either, but I'm so glad you chose the latter. You stood next to me under the chuppah as my best man, my best friend, and I'm so equally in awe of who you are. And when people, uh, you probably remember this, when people give us enormous credit for the experience they've had, sometimes we we share it and we, we make sure they know that, oh, there were a lot of people involved in, in, in what just happened. I appreciate you thanking me, but it's, it's, it, it, the credit belongs to a lot of folks. When I receive those, those expressions of gratitude in my mind, you are, you are receiving a, an enormous share of that. So thank you very much as well. And so now I'm going to say what I always say at the end of the, of the episodes. And it goes like this for our listeners. I'm really glad that you're still here listening to heretics standing at Sinai and now able to watch the conversations. If you care to on YouTube, I'm so excited about what's coming next. These conversations have meant a lot. And so the next, the next interview that I'll have a couple weeks from now is with another rabbi that Arnie also introduced me to. Uh, Hal Greenwald uh, has been someone who has very, very different thoughts about the world in every respect from the way I do. And he and I have maintained contact loosely also over the years. So he'll be joining me for a conversation in December with a chevruta of his, a study partner who's an evangelical pastor. So the, the, the conversation is going to be very different than anything else we've done here. I'm very excited about it. So you can watch for that episode. If you found something valuable in the time that you've spent listening to us, I'm grateful. And for those of you who want to take a moment and share this reflection with me or a question or a reflection with Rabbi Arnie, I'll be happy to pass it on to him. And if you want to share the, the link with someone else that you know would appreciate it, by all means. For those of you who are here coming for your first time, welcome. I uh, hope you'll come back. And to all of you heretics out there, stand proud. And that's how I end every episode. Oh, God.